Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. We've been careful on Raise the Line to use the term psychedelic-assisted therapy because as we've heard from our guests, these compounds are best administered in the context of a therapeutic relationship in a safe, controlled setting. Today, we're going to focus more on the therapy part of the equation with Dr. Mary Bitt Yaden, an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University, who contends that administering psychedelic-assisted therapy is vastly different for professionals used to conventional mental health treatments. She co-authored an article in JAMA Psychiatry in 2021 entitled Psychedelics and Psychiatry, Keeping the Renaissance from Going Off the Rails, with her Hopkins colleagues, Dr. Roland Griffiths and Dr. David Yaden, who was a previous guest on the podcast and who also is her husband. Dr. Yaden earned her medical degree at Thomas Jefferson University in Pennsylvania and did her residency in psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. And as a side note, she's also my preceptor at Johns Hopkins in my return to medical school. So I really appreciate her taking the time out of her schedule to be on the podcast and also to to mentor me as I'm returning to med school. So Bit, thanks for taking the time to be with us. I'm so delighted to to chat. I'm looking forward to it. So we always like to begin by asking our guests in their own words to tell us what got them interested in a career in medicine and in your case, ultimately psychiatry. Wow. I That's a great one. So I... It's interesting because I grew up in a family of physicians, which I think is one of those really common things. I think medicine is one of those professions where a lot of people have family members or other close folks that, you know, you kind of get to see exemplars of medicine that really shape your thinking. And for me, I was, I actually grew up really interested in the arts and the kind of other disciplines. And it was only really until college and after college that I recognized that, I could have a career in medicine, but also create space for other areas of my passion. And I felt like psychiatry in particular allowed for a really interdisciplinary practice and that I can combine different areas of my own interests into my clinical work. And it doesn't take away from my medicine, but rather makes me a better, I think, doctor. And I'm especially finding that in what I'm doing right now. But yeah, I I, I think it many paths led me here, but I'm, I'm certainly grateful to have made it to the other side. Absolutely. And well, you have a pretty interesting background because you also have an interest in, you know, we've talked about everything from Buddhism to the work you did at Penn in positive psychology. So for our audience, can you fill them in a bit about maybe the positive psychology? What drew you to that and your experience at Penn in that? Absolutely. So for me, when I was in college, I actually, I went to NYU and I was in a program that was very allowed you to create your own major, which is kind of the opposite of the medical school experience. You have like a carte blanche to say, I want to, you know, learn about very specific things. And for me, my interest at that time was really looking at the intersection of well-being studies. So things like what makes us happy and also things like Eastern religion in particular. And so I was, you know, it was a great college and that way is so wonderful and that you can really be very clear about what makes you curious about the world and being a human and growing up. And for me, that was about exploring Eastern spirituality and, and evidence-based well-being practices. And so that's when I was first exposed to the work of well-known psychologist named Martin Seligman, who is probably in your psychology textbooks for having define something called learned helplessness, which is part of the theory of what causes depression, specifically that when you experience failure or have thoughts that are particularly distressing about your future potential or who you are as a person or what the world is like, that it can inspire in us this kind of apathy or lack of motivation that then looks a lot like depression, both in models of animals as well as adults you know, people, adult people, I should say, and that somewhere into his career, he said, actually, I'm really done studying what makes people unwell. And I want to get really curious about what science tells us about what allows people to flourish. And he really created space for a field to grow, to ask scientifically, what are the practices or things that we can be doing that allow us to live better, kind of regardless of whether or not we're dealing with psychiatric illness or otherwise. And so 
I found that really compelling and had the opportunity to get a master's degree at Penn, really just to learn about the existing literature and to try to kind of expand it and way or envision ways to expand it in the future. And so that was such a great opportunity and really was my first introduction into psychology, but also a lot of the same themes that make psychedelics interesting to me now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And definitely share that interest because, you know, I think so much of medicine is focusing on getting people from the, you know, from negative 10, from a, um, an abnormal quote, quote unquote state to a normal state. But everyone seems to exist on a, on a, on a spectrum. And people, we talked about this actually just last week in Denver at the Psychedelic Science Conference, people tend to, you know, people who may have been flourishing, like healthcare professionals, can go to moral injury and burnout within months, if not, I mean, years, if not months. So they, you know, move up and down that spectrum, depending on circumstances in their life. And so, you know, paint us a picture of, you know, was it at Penn at, with Martin Seligman and with David that you got into the study of psychedelics? Or was that more after after residency? Like, when did that happen? That's a great question. So it was actually, it was at Penn. And, you know, I have a great memory. I was just telling the story recently that I, David was a colleague of mine at Penn. We were both in graduate school and we're both kind of interested in spirituality and we're both meditators and he we were in the library at some point and he passed me a paper i just like have this very visceral memory of him passing me the i think it was the 2006 article that roland had written about that psilocybin can occasion mystical experiences which is one of the kind of the first big articles in psychedelics that are in psilocybin research that came out and was just totally blown away and i was not you know i'd come to you know i was interested in mystical experiences and spirituality i was not interested in psychedelics i didn't you know i I, I didn't grow up kind of as a part of that subculture or being really exposed to it, but I thought, wow, this is so interesting. And then I think in future years, just seeing the opportunity as clinical trials started flowing out that showed efficacy for things like tobacco use disorder, alcohol use disorder, major depression, end of life care or treatment of existential distress and, and patients with cancer that I was just like, wow, this has incredible merit and like incredible potential, it would seem. And I think it's been really fun to see that field develop. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so yeah, let's get into the psychedelic assisted therapy because, you know, you, I've been looking forward to having you on the podcast because I've, I've had the privilege to interview a lot of the other CPCR, Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research faculty at Hopkins. And everyone I think I've spoken to has come from a very interesting background, whether it's Fred as a neuroscientist or Al as a psychologist, or obviously David, as well as a very well-established, impressive researcher. You're the first, I think, clinician, the, you know, especially the first MD I've had on the podcast from CPCR talking about psychedelics. So you know, having both diagnosed and treated people with, say, conventional psychiatric medications and therapies, you know, now you're starting to delve into the psychedelic aspects. What are some compare and contrast that, that maybe we should be aware of? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I'll start by way of just saying that I love being a psychiatrist. You know, I know that a bunch of, I, I'll use any opportunity to shout out psychiatry because I think it is such a deeply meaningful field. And, you know, I think that regardless of the kind of approach you're taking to treatment, that, you know, our patients are suffering and they're suffering in a way that is oftentimes ignored or underappreciated by other fields of medicine. And I think that, oh, you know, psychiatry not only allows us to address mental illness, but also I think some of the deeper questions and challenges about what it is just to be human. And so I think that, you know, before even talking about kind of like how we begin to approach those things, whether they be illness or just the human condition, I just have to shout out the field of psychiatry in general, because I think that, you know, even while it is an imperfect field, I think it has great potential and it has done, you know, some very good things historically, maybe some other things that are not so good, but I think that there is a real promise in psychedelic-based treatments, or I, I certainly hope so. I'm putting my 
you know, I'm investing my career in that area. So I'm very hopeful, but I also am always wanting to be as aligned with the evidence as much as possible. And so we're certainly at the infancy of this field. So as that preamble is over, going back to your question, which is, okay, psychiatry does things one way. How is psychedelic assisted treatment different? And so I guess the best way to talk about this is to give an example and that imagine, you know, one of the, in, in our lab specifically at Johns Hopkins works primarily with the medicine called psilocybin. Psilocybin is known, is the active ingredient in hallucinogenic mushrooms, which, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with and kind of a heard about them, but maybe don't know the term psilocybin more directly. So psilocybin is the medicine that we use most in our lab and has had some compelling evidence for several different indications. But one I think that has, you know, is very interesting for a psychiatrist is depression or even kind of some of the depression that happens when really bad things happen, like cancer diagnoses or end-of-life treatment, et cetera. So as a psychiatrist, there are a few things that I can do if a patient comes to me and they're depressed. The first thing, you know, I love to recommend, and, you know, I feel like psychiatrists often aren't thought of as therapists, but we do get lots of good therapy training is that, you know, therapy is good for anyone, whether or not you're suffering from depression, anxiety, or just, again, a human who is dealing with the trials of being a human. I think having a good therapist is always kind of solution number one. The other thing that we offer are medications. And I think psychiatric medications can seem kind of intimidating, I think, to other providers and also, you know, maybe have some negative reputations. And yet we have good evidence to suggest that there is a lot of safe psychiatric medications that treat depression. And so the most common ones we hear about are, of course, SSRIs or serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and are pretty commonly prescribed for patients you know, whether that be in a primary care setting or in a, you know, a true psychiatric setting. And so these are kind of our tools and things like SSRIs are medicines that you take every day and you take them like a vitamin. We know that over periods of four to six weeks, we see changes in people's moods that are often very subtle. And yet we can see remission of illness, ideally in a lot of patients. So that's one model. That's the traditional model. And for a lot of folks, that is effective. And for some other folks, it's not. And I think the question of what, you know, how do we best serve people that that kind of daily pill solution or kind of standard psychotherapy solution is not working, like what other things can we offer them? And I think the psychedelic assisted treatment model is really unique in that it's different from this. So whereas we talked about you know, taking medicine every day and seeing a therapist once a week. Psychedelic assisted psychotherapy or treatment structures are time limited, that these are often happening over a period of three months. And again, I'm talking about this in the context of what we are seeing in our clinical trials, because at this point, psilocybin is not something you can go down to your pharmacy and get. It's not legal in our country. And yet we're, we are exploring this treatment structure in a clinical trial setting. So in that context, treatment is usually around two to three months. A lot of these studies are taking the shape that it, again, I'm giving a generalization where you are meeting with therapists. And again, that the, the idea here is that the medicine that you'll be receiving, you're, you know, is, is linked to your relationship with these therapists who are supporting the work you're starting together and for about three to four sessions before you even take this medicine, you're just meeting with these two providers. In our case, we use two therapists for every one patient, really just to, again, ensure ultimate safety, because this is an experimental treatment, to really get to know participants. So, and that can include different kinds of psychotherapy. I'm, I'm going really in the weeds here, but you can stop me at any point if you want me to be less specific, but I'll- No, this is great. I appreciate appreciate that. Yeah, I just think it's it's so weird that it's like you kind of have to go a little bit deep into it. So, for the first three to four weeks, a lot of this kind of psychotherapy, and I'm going to call it kind of a supportive psychotherapy structure, or like you know, kind of su supportive treatment, is really just about understanding who the participant or patient is, 
in their life story, regardless of if they're there for depression or another indication. It's just trying to get to know you so that you can build that trust that is essential to any kind of psychiatric treatment. So whether it's you're doing psychedelics or otherwise, that trust is kind of key no matter what. And then after this three or four weeks of trust building and psychotherapy, we bring people into a kind of a living room like space in our lab and administer this medicine psilocybin that subjective effects last around six to eight hours, usually around, I should say kind of most intensively around six. And it's another conversation to talk about what those subjective effects are like. But for many people, it feels like an altered state of consciousness. This is a different way of experiencing themselves, the world, their relationship with other people. We often put people in blindfolds and have them listen to classical music, which in and of itself is kind of weird in a therapy context. And yet this can allow people in many cases to think about their life and make connections or meaning making in a different way. And then the two therapists that they've gotten to know very well are there to support them should any scary things come up or any unsettling experiences or they want to talk, have a handhold. So there's, I think it's like a very safe space, so to speak. And then following that, we integrate the experience with more psychotherapy. So like the next day we'll have a session and talk about, you know, what sort of interesting things came up during that experience. And then... You know, some of these protocols will say, okay, after a few psychotherapy sessions, kind of integrating the first dosing session, we'll have another dosing session and kind of see where things go. And sometimes we use a slightly higher dose or we'll, you know, adjust things accordingly or a lower dose. And then again, have another, let's say three to four weeks of psychotherapy to integrate that second experience. And that will close treatment. And that's when we start measuring whether or not this kind of discrete, you know, three months of psychotherapy and two dosing sessions of psilocybin work or not for something like depression or demoralization or another kind of target. So that was a very long-winded response, but I think the takeaways are, this is not taking a pill every day. This is taking a pill twice. This is not, maybe you have psychotherapy or not. This is treatment that has psychotherapy as integral to its success. This is not kind of, maybe I feel a little better today taking an SSRI, but I'm not quite sure. This is deliberately taking a medicine that changes your mental state in a way that is not ordinary, that can involve feelings of connectedness, sometimes can involve scary things or feelings of fear, and sometimes can involve full-blown mystical experiences. But, But yeah, I would say this is not normal psychiatry. And yet maybe this is a new normal for psychiatry in the future for some folks who do want to practice this. So it's exciting. That's a, that's a really helpful kind of compare and contrast because I think it's the first one we've first time we've heard it on this podcast. And again, one reason I was looking so looking forward to having you as a psychiatrist who's seen both sides on the podcast and can compare and contrast. So thank you for that. You know, going, going into, yeah, and actually this reminds me of a conversation I had last week with a guy named Jishan Chowdhury at Journey Collab is the company he has. They're trying to build psychedelic assisted therapy on top of existing rehab infrastructure. And I think I met him alongside David as well. And he says, maybe this is less psychedelic assisted therapy and more like psychedelic surgery or psych- psychological surgery, where it, just in terms of the actual procedure, where it's this pre-op, this operative time, eight hours in like a you know, an OR or a psychedelic room, and then the integration or the post-op being extremely important, whether that's physical therapy or some sort of rehab. What I'm just curious, what are your reactions to that kind of way of thinking about it? I love that. I love that framing. And I think that, you know, the, the within psychiatry, the place where we kind of put psychedelic assisted treatments is in what is thought of as interventional psychiatry, which I think in some ways, when we think about interventions, we do think about surgery. And I think that, there's a lot of overlap. There's far more overlap between the surgical specialties and the psychiatric specialties than anybody gives us credit for. There's actually, yeah, a funny thing is that a lot of times you'll meet medical students who are deciding between the two and you can't imagine more radically different worlds. And yet there can be an intensity to both. But I think that to your point, there is surgery itself is something that has a lot of ritual involved in it. There is 
as you said, pre-op. There's a lot of pre-op screenings. There's a lot of kind of setup to a day when you're going to go in and before you're, quote, put under, you're one way. And then you're not sure what's going to happen afterwards. There's this kind of letting go of control. And then you wake up presumably somehow different afterwards. And so I think that in that same way, psychedelic-assisted interventions are similar. You walk into a building, you you take a medicine, you don't know what it's, what's going to happen. You're surrendering that kind of control. And at the end of it, you may be different in some way afterwards. And so I think it has that quality just in terms of procedurally, it, it's similar. And then, you know, I think that there are also these questions of how does psychedelic base experiences vanquish aspects of our you know, or I want to be careful in how I say this, but I, I think that there is this sense of when we want to, is there things that we can let go of during psychedelic experiences that we would have trouble letting go of during other kinds of experiences that in that way mirrors this idea of I go into surgery and I have this thing, I have a cancer that I take out. And I think there's an idea. I had a patient actually to get I love a good patient exam is a doctorly thing to just give you a patient example. I had a, a lovely woman who we were treating in one of our studies and she was coming in with, we were actually looking at OCD and she was not, not thinking about grief as part of her diagnosis, but after her session reflected on having grieved the loss of a loved one afterwards that she really felt like after having this six hours with us in a room with eye shades on where we said absolutely nothing to her and listened to classical music together that, you know, she said, oh my gosh, I, 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 I feel like I grieved the loss of this parent in a way that I am truly different having had this experience. It's like, it wasn't like I'm thinking about grieving it or I'm starting to grieve it. It was like, I went there in this experience in a way that now has made me feel very differently about that loss. And I thought that that's, it's kind of interesting that way, the things that we let go of during these procedures. That's fascinating. By the way, I love specifics. So, you know, if any of those come to mind, like, like that one, those, I mean, I love, you know, it's just such a good sign of, of, I think, bringing something that's super abstract into the real world, tangible, like when you can cite different patients and, and studies, et cetera. So I love the connection of, you know, mind-body connection, psychosomatic, as, as has been discussed. And it made me think as you were talking, and we talked positive psychology of just earlier this year, the Surgeon General's office, and we've had people from their office on the podcast, released this report about this epidemic of loneliness and feeling disconnected for nobody, people don't have best friends or friends alone, which is paradoxical, because, you know, we're more connected than ever via the internet and Twitter and Instagram, and Facebook, but feel lonelier. And what the Surgeon General's office concluded in this 81-page report is that loneliness, severe loneliness, could be as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of the cost to someone's health, heart attack and stroke and whatnot. So, you know, I know I don't think loneliness is an outcome variable for psychedelic studies as far as I've seen, but maybe you can give our audience a bit of an overview of what gets you most excited as far as all the different things we've heard, depression, anxiety, OCD, eating disorders, but then also human flourishing and spiritual experiences. What, what gets you personally most excited about the array of things this could be used for or is being used for? Well, I'm going to answer both your comments and agree with you and, and say why I think that's such a brilliant point to bring up. And then we can kind of, I'll, I'll think out loud about what makes me most excited because there's a lot of things that I think are exciting. But I think your point about loneliness is so well taken. And I think one of the most compelling outcomes in the literature exploring the phenomenology of psychedelic-based experiences and some of the outcomes people have afterwards is this increased feeling of connectedness. Which again, is not, we're not going in there and saying, okay, you know, you're, you're walking out the door with more friends than you came with. It's not like that. That's not the outcome, but rather that there is something about psychedelic experiences and the container that psychedelic assisted psychotherapy supports that can, for many of our participants, and I have heard this, changed how they feel in terms of reaching out to their community. And so I had another patient, I'll just give you all the patient examples, but a lady who came in, you know, again, in a totally different context, was not looking to like feel more connected, like was 
presumably pretty well connected in her community and, you know, had kids and was lovely. And, you know, she remarked after her experience just that she felt more willing or more comfortable showing parts of her own heart to other people that she felt like in the before she had sought out friendships that were good and helpful, but that she had never been able to show vulnerability and kind of her her connections with different people and that something about the psychedelic based experience and going through that kind of therapeutic process allowed her to feel safer and to feel more willing to be vulnerable and intimate with friends. And that was not what we were treating her for. That was not the outcome that we were measuring. And yet that was the one that she kept saying had the most meaning for her and was so important in her life. And she talked about wanting to strengthen her marriage and these other things. And this is not uncommon for many of our participants to really walk away saying, sure, maybe I'm less depressed, but really I just love my family and want to spend more time with them or care about my friends and you know, if, if that's what this treatment does, or if that's a big kind of if so-called side effect, then I will take it. So that's an aside. But, you know, to your question about what's most exciting, you know, I think there this is a two-part answer. So I'll give you the one that I think is most exciting for medicine more broadly, because like there's a lot in psychiatry that there's a lot of things. And yet I know a lot of the folks who listen to your podcast are not going to be psychiatrists, even though I wish they would, because I think it's so wonderful. But I think some of the most compelling evidence, specifically with psilocybin, because again, that's what our lab does, has been around smoking cessation. And, you know, our lab is going to hopefully at some point publish a study that some of my colleagues have done on outcomes related to tobacco use disorder, which we know for you know, in the preventable causes of death and, and illness and medicine is huge smoking. Any doctor will tell you that we shouldn't be smoking. And yet it's so hard to quit. And there's a lot of well-meaning folks who encourage quitting and there's medications that we have that are not necessarily that effective. And I think the outcome potential with psilocybin and psychedelic, you know, assisted treatments are, really cool. And I don't want to like ruin the results of this future research, so I'm not going to speak to it very directly in specifics, but I will say that I think seeing that data come out around tobacco use disorder and other substance use disorders for me is just heartening across the field of medicine. And so I'm really excited to see that work continue to develop. I think for me, because, you know, I very personally, like when I came to medicine and psychiatry, like I did this because I wanted to kind of deeply connect with other people. And I thought a lot about being a chaplain and was a meditation teacher and was really, you know, valued that kind of bedside time when it's not just about you being the doctor and someone else being the patient, but what it is to be with another human in moments that are incredibly challenging or incredibly meaningful and to kind of to be with others in that way. And I think for me, psychedelic based treatments provide a really powerful vehicle by which we can experience the human condition with other people and hopefully see them flourish in new ways that are aligned with their values. And so I think that part is so exciting and thinking about things like end of life care, which oftentimes like, you know, I can't, I can't give you an SSRI that is going to truly take away the loss and the pain of what it is to say goodbye to your family, you know, at the end. And yet it feels like such a privilege to be a part of helping to facilitate experiences whereby individuals can find peace and meaning with the hardest parts of what it is to be alive. So that to me just feels meaningful and I, it makes, you know, me excited to continue to do this work in the future. Absolutely. Those are each one of those are very interesting threads to pull on. And again, I echo why I'm excited about the work and, you know, being able to learn and, and work with you all. I want to talk a bit about, well, before we go into maybe workforce considerations around scaling up psychedelic assisted therapy, which is super important. One last point about, you know, maybe the you know, one-time or two-time intervention type 
clinical trials we're doing versus the chronic SSRI type interventions. One of the people we had in the podcast last year was Jim Fadiman, James Fadiman, who obviously he wrote the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide and is well known as the father of microdosing and really advocates for the citizen science approach, which, which you know, we, many of us have heard and examples of, you know, tech founders out in Oakland getting, you know, being on these protocols of microdosing psilocybin or LSD, you know, as a psychiatrist yourself, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on like that approach of, you know, obviously a lot of times self-administered psychedelic therapy that is not so much what you described as what's clin- clinically being studied? Yeah, this is an awesome question. I'm so glad you asked it because like I am a psychiatrist and so like I favor safety and medical monitoring and I have a lot of humility about what we know about this medicine or these medicines and what we don't. And so I'll just kind of rattle off a few things. I think that, you know, I I think that as excited as I am to learn more about psychedelics and the treatment of disorders, as well as kind of, as you alluded to this idea of human flourishing, I think we have to be really careful. And I I remember I had a great residency or med student mentor who was like, powerful things have side effects. Like if things work, they have side effects. Like that's the, that's the kind of good and bad of things. And so I think that we need to be honest and open about the idea that a medicine can have a lot of potential and it's powerful and can do some things that maybe we don't want it to do. And so, you know, having seen people have really powerful positive experiences on psilocybin, for instance, I've also heard a ton of stories about folks in unsupportive environments having really scary, challenging experiences that were maybe unstable and destabilizing for them. And I think that, you know, I only know the evidence for what's been done in clinical trials, and those are highly, highly regulated environments with very trained providers and highly screened patients. And so, you know, I'm, you know, jumping up and down, excited about the results of these studies, and that's all I can be excited about. You know what I mean? I, I really can't encourage my patients to do things that I don't know are safe. And that's kind of my job as a, you know, it's kind of the the doctorly thing, I think. And, you know, my own journey kind of becoming a physician of recognizing that like our, our number one job is to keep people safe in many ways. And so I think that I would be really hesitant to recommend you know, things outside of the research model at this point. I think you brought up something very interesting, which is kind of microdosing in particular. And, you know, there have been some preliminary studies of microdosing that have not necessarily shown overwhelming evidence that it's effective for some of the things that people are targeting when they're doing it. I also want to highlight one of the interesting kind of specifics about microdosing in particular is that, Psilocybin, and I hope I don't misquote this, this is not my area of research, but psilocybin, like a few other substances, can act on very specific receptors that are, of course, in the brain, but also in other parts of the body, like the heart. And so that we know that with psilocybin in particular, or again, like similar substances, classic psychedelics, that many of them particularly act on a receptor in the heart that can make it more likely with persistent exposure that you develop structural heart disease or valvular disease. And so this is not something unknown for a lot of medicines. Like we give people medicines that can cause this, something like cabergoline, which is a dopamine agonist, is another example of something that can work on heart valves in this particular way that can make it more likely for you to develop things like aortic stenosis. And we monitor these patients that need this medicine very closely with echocardiograms just to make sure that they can take this safely. So that's a known risk. And we know that psilocybin acts on the same receptor and could also put people at risk for this kind of valvular disease. And, you know, we daily dosing of something like psilocybin may not be a good idea for us. We don't know that. We haven't done those studies specifically looking not just at does it make people feel better or not, or make them more productive or not, but does it put them more at risk for for heart disease. I don't think we know that. I think we have compelling evidence that 
two doses of this medicine in a three-month treatment is probably not dangerous. But again, things like microdosing where you're potentially taking a medicine every day, I don't have evidence to say that that's effective. I also don't have evidence to say that that's safe. And so that's my hesitation about it, just from a very psychiatric kind of medical doctor standpoint. That's great. No, thanks for thanks for sharing that. And I think it's important that our audience listens to this because I think this is also one of the points from your JAMA Psychiatry paper is how do we avoid being in peak hype cycle? David David shared this last week at the a great talk he gave, which is maybe psychedelic researchers and, and frankly the organization put together that, that that conference maps. We've had Rick Doblin on the podcast maybe give out what he called like a wet blanket award. Like let's celebrate let's celebrate the studies that actually reduce all the hype that's coming around, you know, can can psychedelics lead to solving climate change as well as, you know, make everyone eliminate wars and things that in the 60s and 70s wound up, I think, ultimately leading to them being banned, just the, the peak hype around it. So maybe you can comment a bit about that. Maybe the, the JAMA article, how do we how do we avoid going back into a, a banned period over the next several decades? I love that. You know, David is not a wet blanket, even though he like, I he's you know, you were mentioning, again, a point he makes about really encouraging people to not get overly excited or kind of oversell psychedelics as kind of the answer to world peace and suffering and all of the things. And I, and that sometimes that makes us out to feel like wet blankets, and that is not the intention. And yet, I think the idea there is so important that, you know, we don't have to make this the solution to all of the problems for this to just be a, a good solution for a few of them. You know what I mean? And I think that humility in medicine is so important and and that it is it will be such a boon if we know that psychedelic assisted therapies treat a few things. That's a great success. And that we don't need, you know, for this to be meaningful and worthy of research, it doesn't need to answer all of the questions. And it's good that we're asking many of these questions. And yet, I think that a great tragedy of this kind of movement to support this kind of therapy and, and to support research in this area could be is if there is so much overblown hype that we become disenchanted too early or that we start allowing for practices that are not a not safe just because there is widespread enthusiasm and support kind of in a more cultural sense as opposed to in an evidence-based way and so you know i think that one of the fun things about being a doctor is that you know you you like a treatment until you read a better study that says that you shouldn't and so i think that you know we are constantly challenged to re re-examine the literature and to continue to learning it is a field of lifelong learning and in that way you know i hope we can all continue to keep learning about psychedelics and not just be sold that they're the answer to something because we you know we never know that for sure but i i think there's great promise and lots of opportunities for us to learn over the next several decades yeah no totally so so going into workforce issues you mentioned that one thing you were exploring was maybe being a chaplain you know, meditation teacher, you know, we, we know that we already have a shortage of tens of thousands of healthcare professionals and mental health professionals in particular, especially with all the mental health challenges that have come as a result of COVID and, you know, being socially isolated, as we discussed, not just from COVID, but from social media. I'm curious, counterpoint is there's also just a lot of like scope of practice concerns across every field, right? My sister and brother-in-law are dentists in Chicago. They have six dental practices and dental assistants versus hygienists versus dentists. What, what do they do? What's the scope of practice? We see that with PAs, NPs. We see that with psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists. You know, can you comment a bit about what you see as a psychiatrist as being important workforce considerations when it comes to actually scaling out psychedelic assisted therapy. And and as someone who's trained alongside social workers, psychologists, because you've gone through a lot of training yourself, how has that reception been as a psychiatrist from Hopkins, like maybe top of the totem pole as far as the, the hierarchical system? Well, I think your first question, I think, really speaks to your, your kind of point about access, which is that there aren't a lot of psychiatrists. There is a shortage of psychiatrists. There's a shortage of so many important healthcare practitioners across discipline. And so realistically, 
you know, it's not going to be two psychiatrists in a room with a patient facilitating this kind of therapy outside of clinical trial context. In many cases, it will likely be that social workers, other, other kinds of licensed therapists, psychologists will be conducting the more of the psychotherapy associated with this, and that there will be kind of an overseeing psychiatrist who may be involved for consultation or medical monitoring as part of this rollout of care. I think that there will also be, and I very much hope, because I'm a, you know, again, I'm a psychiatrist who loves being a therapist, psychiatrists who do take a more active role in the actual psychotherapy involved in this work. And I think that you know, I, I will say in thinking about things like burnout, there is both burnout that we get because we're working too much and there's burnout that we get because the work we're doing doesn't feel meaningful. And I know for me, I actually think about my psychotherapy hours that I spend with my patients as being feeding my soul as much as it is caring for other people. And I think that there's an opportunity for psychiatrists to safeguard that space for ourselves that we can continue to kind of advocate for and provide that care as we are able. And there's different structures that make this challenging, like reimbursement and, you know, it's complicated. And at the same time, I think that there's a role for psychiatrists in many areas of psychedelic assisted therapy work. And I hope that that will continue into the future. So that's point one. And then point two, you know, it's funny about how I think in some ways psychedelic assisted treatments in psychiatry is natural and is a, you know, is a thing that psychiatrists across the world are rejoicing that we're, we get to kind of use these medicines again and be curious. I, I will share a funny fact that we, that early research into psychedelic substances actually allowed for the discovery of serotonin as a neurotransmitter that until, you know, scientists in the fifties and sixties were trying to, you know, beginning to understand these medicines that then it led them to ask questions about other chemicals in the brain that then led to the development of things like SSRIs. So, you know, this does not, this is not so other from what we have been immersed in for the last century in our field. And yet there was this big shift away from looking at psychedelics as having you know, important potential both in research domains or clinical domains because of this prohibition by the government and a lot of fear around recreational use. And I think that that fear really biases a lot of psychiatrists against them. I think we are protective of our patients and we get scared when we know our patients have substance use disorders and it can be hard to differentiate between the abuse potential of things like psychedelics and the abuse potentials of things like opiates. And I think that can lead a lot of psychiatrists to be fearful and cautious. And yet I've been really reassured by the data that shows that you know, for psilocybin, for instance, this is not a medicine that people are using on a daily basis. This is not a medicine that you become physically dependent upon. This is not a medicine that inspires, you know, the kind of suffering that is typical in the context of things like opiate use disorder or cocaine use disorder. This this has a different profile. And in that way, I think many psychiatrists are coming around to the idea that you know, these may not be drugs in the way that we think about recreational drugs, but rather could be seen as medicines again, and hopefully will be in the future. Uh, it's again, very nuanced and interesting answer to that, especially because so many of our audience are going into, you know, they're, they're finishing up med school or they're finishing up residency. They may be interested in, in, in careers like yours in psychiatry, but also kind of pushing the frontier in psychedelic assisted therapy. So for, for them, for those people listening, I'm curious, what, what advice do you have for them about meeting the, this moment in their careers, not just psychedelics, but in general, what advice would you give them? That's a great one. You know, it was so funny. I was talking to another member of our research team at Hopkins and we were appreciating how different the landscape even is in five years. I remember I was interviewing for residency at Hopkins. And I ultimately chose to do residency at Penn because that's where my husband was getting, finishing his PhD. And I had a one, I actually loved being a resident. This is an aside that like, you will be, people will scare you about being a resident. And I loved it. It was so hard and it like totally is exhausting. And you learn so much and, you know, 
I think that, yeah, anyways, that's just an aside about like, don't be scared about residency. It, it, it can actually be wonderful. But I remember I was at an interview and I knew that Hopkins had this psychedelic research. And at the time, it was not necessarily something that many people were talking about. It was years ago. And so it was not, you know, it, it, it was not as popular on people's radars. And yet, and it was kind of like in hushed voices. We were like, hey, what's up with that psychedelic stuff you guys are doing? And it was like, oh, yeah, that stuff's really exciting. It's, you know, this person is working on it. And, you know, it was clear that Hopkins was really a leader in this area already. And then nowadays, when, you know, I was a chief at Penn, and it was like, there was a ton of people interested in psychedelics. And all of these, you know, resident applicants were super excited to talk about it and asking questions really openly. And so I think it shows you that in even just a few years, the culture around, is it okay to talk about this or not, really changed. And so I think the advice I would give is that don't be scared to talk about what you find interesting, because I think that there is, you know, so many cool frontiers in medicine and psychiatry. And, you know, and I think that seek out people who are willing to have conversations about those things and don't be discouraged if people tell you that they think that this is too out there because i think that out there things become standard of care pretty quickly <laughs> and that that is you know that's why being a doctor is so cool because we get to watch the field change that's great advice and i think that's pretty unique advice too after you know 400 episodes just being authentic to yourself people say be passionate you know, follow your passions which implicitly i think talks about being genuine or authentic to yourself but i'll say this resonates with me not only in the field of psychedelics but also you know interrupting med school to start a company still being entrepreneurial a lot of people will say you know residency program directors or frankly even hopkins clerkship directors may not be very supportive of that and it's true a lot of them are not but i don't want to necessarily close my passions and interests based on what other people want. You start hiding things about yourself or burying them. I think that's a recipe for for burnout, moral injury, not being happy, whether that's your professional interest or, or personal interest, it seems. I feel like that's such a great, that is such a great point. And I think that you're a prime example of that. And it's like, you know, if everybody who told you that like, that was maybe not the best idea had encouraged you not to start a company, that would, your life would have looked very different. And clearly this is, you know, gone quite well. And I think likewise in that, you know, I, I was, you know, never, I was lucky that my residency program was led by really warm and loving people that let me be myself as much as I wanted to be. And that way it was kind of the same thing that good residency programs are like good parents. They kind of love you no matter how you are. And I definitely had that experience. And so that I was really encouraged to pursue. I taught meditation. I did all sorts of weird stuff that maybe some other folks would have discouraged me against, but they just allowed me to flourish. And then I would publish. And then, you know, you get to meet these other extrinsic metrics just because you're excited to do what you're passionate about, as you said, but also to show up with who you are, like who you really are. And I think that that matters most. Yeah. I love that. Good residency programs are like good parents. So that's that's a great great way to look at it too. And hopefully many of our audience can be fortunate to find one like like you did at Penn with their psychiatry program. I yeah, I should just shout her out my residency training director and my associate program director. One was named Cabrina Campbell and one was named Kristen Light. And they were my family and they did a, such a wonderful job, you know holding I, I could tell stories about them but i won't i will just say that I, I felt so blessed to really feel like not that they weren't asking me to do call or hard things or stay up all night and like all of the other stuff but that i was truly safe and well cared for and as a person and not just as a you know a worker in a program so i i hope everybody finds leadership like that that's awesome. Really great. I want to be respectful of your time. So I only had one last question for you, and it's very open-ended, which is basically, is there anything else about you, about CPCR, the educational programs you're helping develop, you, anything you want to share with our audience before we let you go for the day? You know, I think psychedelic education. So, you know, we've talked about the field of psychedelic research, which is just like, we're doing studies. And soon we're going to have, and some people would argue that Ketamine can be used in a psychedelic assisted therapy model and it can be. And, but, you know, soon we'll have 
more medicines like MDMA or psilocybin, which I've talked a lot about today in a therapeutic, a clinical context. And I think the third frontier is thinking about how do we as psychiatric educators think about teaching about psychedelic assisted therapy? And I think that that presents new, exciting questions in teaching. And I think that they're fun and exciting thing. You know, like it's, it's like, you know, how do we, how do we prep medical students for an integration session with a patient after a psychedelic experience to talk about mystical experience? Cause like, that's the thing that we actually measure. It's not just like this rando thing that's like really out there that like maybe a patient says one day, it's like, no, we know that if we give this medicine in a certain proportion of patients, they report transformative or mystical like experiences as a psychiatrist. Nobody gave me a lecture on like how to talk about that in a grounded way or in an, you know, in a way that is evidence-based or, you know, that that's wild. And yet that is what I think one of the more interesting things that we have to prepare providers for in the future is how to have conversations that are not just about, you know, kind of run of headache side effects or, you know, other things, blood pressure side effects, but also about things like, you know, what happens if you just want to call your grandmother afterwards, or you just are tearful or like have these different feelings about the world and the meaning of life. And like, how do we begin to unpack that? And I think as educators, we get to help our students think about those things too. And and that for me sounds really excited. And so I hope that you're all exposed to good educators in the psychedelic space. And I'm sure that there will be good things on the horizon. I'm positive as well with, especially because you're the one leading it at Hopkins. So with that bit, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on this podcast and sharing what lessons you've learned and wisdom you have from your career as both a psychiatrist and now going into the space of psychedelics, but more importantly, the work that you've done to, as we say, raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. Well, thank you. It's really nice to chat. This is so fun and I appreciate it. And yeah, thank you for having me. Awesome. And with that, I'm Shivivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.